0: You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual Ideas Festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. (music) Diplomacy and its discontents, hard power, chaired by Chief Executive and Publisher of Atlantic Books, Toby Mundy.
1: We live in interesting times, and uh, military adventurism of the last 15 years has given away to something maybe a bit more cautious and a much greater reliance these days on Diplomacy and politics. But is diplomacy anything more than saying, nice doggy until you can find a rock, as Will Rogers once said? I'm joined this morning to discuss a multitude of questions, I'm sure we could talk all day, by a distinguished panel to uh, consider some of the issues around diplomacy in the modern world. Um, uh, Christine, uh, Christiane Amanpour uh, is the uh, chief international correspondent and anchor at CNN, a multi-award-winning journalist um, her illustrious career has taken her to all of the leading hotspots in the world and I'm delighted that she can join us. She also secured extraordinary interviews with uh, Hosni Mubarak and Colonel Gaddafi uh, on the, around the Arab Spring. To Christi, uh, Christiane's uh, left is uh, Rear Admiral Chris Parry, um, who spent, I think, 35, 36 years in the Royal Navy um, and nowadays advises governments and banks about strategic issues. Um, He had an extraordinary job title, uh, which he was formerly Director General of Development, Concepts and Doctrine, I think. Is that the Ministry of Defence? Cardinal Ratzinger. (laughs) And uh, to my immediate right uh, is James Rubin, uh, who's a visiting scholar at the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford um, and served under President Clinton as Assistant Secretary of State for Public Affairs and Chief Spokesman for the State Department from uh, 1997 to 2000. Uh, And has also been a, a, a significant advisor and commentator... Uh, over many years. Um, we've just seen uh, Susan's uh, very affecting and vivid portrayal of the human disaster of Syria. I'd like to start with, with you, Chris Perry. Um, if the West had intervened in Syria, what form would that intervention have taken, do you think, and what would its outcome have been? Where would we be now?
2: Well, I think the original intention, and I'll stick to the military, uh, Aspects um, would have been to fire cruise missiles into the Assad regime's uh, governmental and military institutions. Um, if you look at the modelling for that, um, that certainly would have got his attention. And I think the intention was to get his attention in the same way that Milosevic's attention was got to go to Dayton. Um, the Dayton agreements with 42 cruise missiles into Belgrade. Unfortunately, you've got to look at the context. Um, the Syrian regime is actually more survivable because it's actually less sophisticated uh, than the uh, Serbian regime at the time, uh, and the infrastructure is also less sophisticated. Now, let's look what Assad would have done in response. Now, we knew he was fueling his Scud rockets in preparation. So the immediate reaction would have been that probably a dozen cities in the greater Middle East would have had scud missile attacks immediately. So that would have been an attack on Cyprus, Turkey and a number of other cities as well. You would immediately have had Iranian involvement because, as you know, the regime is very closely allied to the Iranians. That probably would have meant terrorist attacks around the world against American and Western interests almost straight away. Uh, and I happen to know, this is privileged information, the Assad regime was planning to retaliate against any attack. If you attack somebody's country, uh, they then have, can open every single box they have if they want to, to retaliate. Now, how would the West have responded to that? Well, I would, have think, I would think they probably would have drawn a very deep breath indeed. Um, so that would have been the immediate effect if we'd intervened with cruise missiles. Uh, right from the start, we, we hobbled our policy by saying, actually, we're not going to put any boots on the ground. Well, that gives you a free pass if you're the opposition. There's absolutely no danger of regime change Uh, if you have total dominance of the air, as Assad has and and had at the time, uh, and uh, you're not going to have any boots on the ground. So the Western policy, and we'll get into the discussion about the greater Sunni-Shia battle that's going on in the Middle East at the moment, but unless you're going to go into somewhere with a defined outcome uh, with all the instruments at your disposal, and that's diplomatic economic and military, they're the three legs of the triad, and this is the mistake we're making over Ukraine. You have no business in going into somebody else's country, trying to do regime change, do aid, or anything else, unless you have a joined-up strategy which has a defined outcome. It is the besetting sin, I'm afraid, of democracies involved in limited wars. We're great at
1: total war, we're fantastic at it, but we're pretty poor at limited wars. Christiane, do you think we should be worried about the sort of something must be done tendency?
3: Um, no, because I think something must be done. And if you just looked at that film, you can understand that something must be done. We are actually witnessing, as human beings, the slow, actually quick now, slaughter of hundreds of thousands of people in Syria. Um, I understand the reservations. I also understand that we are now in an area, an era of retrenchment. The leader of the free world, the leader of NATO, President Obama, has decided that this is a time when we pull back from military adventures, probably burned by what happened during the Bush administration. The British Parliament voted against even punishing uh, Assad for crossing their own red line, which was chemical weapons. This was shocking to all of us because Britain is a warrior nation and Britain has stood with defending these kinds of rights and this kind of order for, anyway, certainly since I remember, um, I think that in that case, if war-war is not an option, then jaw-jaw has to be the option. And that, even that isn't going right. And if we're talking about diplomacy and its discontent, um, two things are not happening. There is no diplomacy over Syria. There is none. It's a charade. Geneva is a charade. Mostly because of, of, uh, of Russia and Iran probably, but Iran's not at the table. Iran's on the ground, Uh, Russia's at the table. Russia is doing nothing to advance any kind of transition in Syria. Add to that the deception that Russia entered into and pulled the wool over America's eyes and Britain's eyes and everybody else's with the so-called much highly vaunted, highly touted, brilliant success of the chemical weapons deal. First and foremost, the chemical weapons have not come out, Secondly, and this is according to the United States Director of National Intelligence, Assad is strengthened by that little bit of diplomacy because he believes the world now needs him. So, in every respect, things are not going right. I happen to have a disagreement with Chris because I was in Bosnia, I was in Kosovo, I know what could have happened in Rwanda had there been timely intervention. It worked there, it was limited, there weren't any boots on the ground. That is a straw man. You do not have to affect change simply by boots on the ground. I also think that now it's very late, but back then I've, I, I, I was so touched by the Banksy um, mm-hmm. cartoon, and you know why he did that for the third anniversary of the Syrian war? Because let's not forget that it was children, young people the age of my son, 14 years old, who at the height of the Arab Spring went and did a little graffiti on the goddamn wall in Derah, just asking for a little reform. And Assad responded in the most brutal, the most savage, the most terrible way. These children were murdered and tortured and shoved under their parents' noses. And that is how he has conducted these last three years. I've broken an enormous number of stories on the vileness of this person, yeah. Assad, who we all thought was this great Western eye doctor who has a beautiful English wife who Instagrams every day about what he's doing in Syria as people are being slaughtered under our noses, and it is actually revolting. And President Clinton, who knows a little bit about this because he also came late, my husband knows a little bit about this, but eventually they did something and it worked in Bosnia. Two years ago in Chicago at a meeting of Nobel Prize winners, and I wasn't at the meeting, but it was, it was off the record. My producer was at the meeting, and President Clinton said the following. The longer we leave this with no diplomacy and with no military, the bigger the space and the bigger the opportunity for the bad guys to enter. And he actually meant on the opposition. And that's actually what's happened. So now we have a situation in Syria where everybody says, oh, you know, it's too late, we can't do anything. And by the way, who are the good guys? It's specious. There are people who we could actually support, and there are horrendous people on the opposition who we have no business supporting. But nobody's bothered. Nobody's bothered to seek out you know, the yeah. doable from the not doable. We can go on to Ukraine afterwards.
1: I'm sure we'll get to Ukraine. So, so, um, so uh, Jamie Rubin, um, what lessons uh, do you think Vladimir Putin learned from the failed Syrian
4: intervention, or the non-intervention in Syria? Well, Um, it's hard to know. Putin is a a realpolitik man. He doesn't have a lot of emotion. He doesn't watch that uh, film and doesn't lose a lot of sleep over it. Um, He watches a film like that and remembers that the United States uh, and the Western world said they were going to uh, act to end the regime of Bashar Assad, And then he watched as very little was done over time. Um, The red line people talk about, that it was crossed, and then the United States, for the first time in my memory, uh, the president asked the Congress to vote before he would even use uh, military force of any kind, knowing full well that Congress was opposed to it. Um, And then we had the British uh, Parliament's vote, so I think he concluded correctly that the West actually doesn't care enough to put at risk anything other than the occasional uh, humanitarian assistance, the occasional diplomatic conference, the uh, interests of the West in the the minds of the United States and the West are not uh, affected. What I think people should remember, though, when you watch a film like that, is what I would call blowback. Um, There are six to nine million refugees, and maybe some of these pictures, uh, when you're taking a shot, they're smiling for you. But I think most of them, uh, over time, uh, will grow up very, very, very angry at the West, at the leadership of what we call the Western world. And I don't know what precise form uh, that blowback will take. Maybe Chris can do a model for us and know for sure which Uh, result it will be. I doubt it. But what I can say is that just as we had blowback after the war in in Afghanistan with the Afghan refugees going into Pakistan and spreading uh, all the anger that they brought with them that led to um, any number of problems, there are going to be conferences five years from now, ten years from now, uh, that are going to talk about how the refugees from the Syrian conflict we're galvanized to do X, to do Y, and to do Z. Now, that's not a reason for us to put at risk uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of ground troops. But for us to think this is just a sad story and, oh, this is too bad, uh, and not understand how close Syria is, how... Look at all these countries we're talking about. We're talking about Turkey. We're talking about uh, Iraq, obviously, has deteriorated as a result. Lebanon. Um, in the current path, let's just be clear... And I've been saying this for two years now. The current path means this continues like this, gets worse and worse. If you can define that, is a basically a Beirut-style civil war for a decade. At some point, somehow, some arrangement might be made, but they've got a lot of of, of war weariness ahead of them before this thing ends.
1: I've got a follow-up question, and then we'll go to a a, a film about a brief, a very short film about Ukraine. I mean, you think? Foreign policy has got harder in the age of not just 24-hour news but social media and things as well. Or is, that, is, it a, is it a help or a hindrance to policymakers?
4: I think it's much, much harder because the pressure to act quickly and say something quickly and uh, not appear to be surprised. I remember I used to sit at a podium like or a situation like this. All the journalists had computers for the first time. They were getting information from their uh, colleagues in Beirut or, or Cambodia, and they were knowing what was going on, and I'm supposed to represent the United States as the spokesman, mm. and they are telling me what's going on on the ground before our embassy knows, before our embassy is called back into the bureau, mm. before the bureau has made a recommendation up to the Secretary of State who can then tell me what I should say. And so you know, I had to wing it. Now I I got good at winging it. Sometimes by not saying very much. Sometimes by guessing. Um, you know, I made mistakes too. But so long as the perception is that you're supposed to have an answer to every question, that you're supposed to know what to do quickly, mm. uh, all that social media just makes uh, government harder uh, to operate.
3: And Toby, just before we move mm. on. Uh, Dan Pfeiffer, the White House communications guru, said a couple of weeks ago on one of the Sunday shows in the U.S. that it is Twitter that they look at. I promised to God I couldn't even believe he admitted it. They brought President Obama into the White House, uh, you know, spokes. What, what's it called? The press room mm-hmm. to to Briefing talk room, about Ukraine yeah. because of the of the of the unbelievable Number amount of, of yeah yeah yeah, and <laughs> and that's a problem for diplomacy. Wow, just one point, David. please, yeah.
2: Um, I've been in charge of um, campaigns, and I've been in three wars, and this inter- it's very interesting that you have to win both the virtual and the real battle as a military officer. And the solution to the problem that you're saying is that you make the news, you don't actually hear about it. So in war, it's essentially to maintain the initiative. Uh, and so just look at what Putin's done. He's kept the initiative throughout. He's made the news. You've been reporting what he's done. So you have to stay one step ahead. So the operational tempo is faster than the information tempo. Now, this is a very sophisticated way of campaigning. As I said, it affects both the real battle space and the virtual battle space. And the modern military commander is being trained to deal with that. And I can tell you that in any war, let's look at the Iraq war, the last Iraq war, there's about 50 minutes worth of news that's reportable from a day's campaigning. And yet, the rest of it is filled up by commentators, people anticipating what's going to happen next, reporting the news, reporting the news, reporting the news. So, let me tell you, I fight as hard as I can over 24 hours. I can produce you 50 minutes worth of copy. That's it. The rest is filled up with the industrialization
1: of gossip. <laughs> wow. OK, we have a short film, very short film about um, a very short film, and then we'll enter the next point of the phase of the discussion. So, uh, we've got two minutes now, I think.
5: The United States extends our deepest condolences to those whose grief is still very fresh and those who lost loved ones, who bravely battled against snipers on rooftops and people armed against them with weapons they never dreamt of having. These uh, brave Ukrainians took to the streets in order to stand peacefully against tyranny and to demand democracy. So instead, they were met with snipers who picked them off one after the other as people of courage, notwithstanding the bullets, went out to get them, drag them to safety, give them comfort, expose themselves. They raised their voices for dignity and for freedom. But what they stood for so bravely, I say with full conviction will never be stolen by bullets or by invasions. It cannot be silenced by thugs from rooftops. It is universal, it's unmistakable, and it's called freedom. So today in another part of this country, we're in a new phase of the struggle for freedom. And the United States reaffirms our commitment to Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity according to international law. We condemn the Russian Federation's act of aggression. And we have throughout this moment uh, evidence of a great transformation taking place. And in that transformation, we will stand with the people of Ukraine. So, um, Christiane. You recently uh, interviewed
1: Madeleine Albright, I think, didn't you? Yep. And um, she was, in in the course of your interview, um, she worried that this might be Czechoslovakia all over again, that the Ukrainians might not get a seat at the table. Is that something you think we should be worried about when this finally plays out into a political solution?
3: Well, I think that, you know, we're seeing what we're seeing play out. People would like to have thought that Putin may not have annexed Crimea. He said he would, and he did. They would maybe like to have thought that he wouldn't have sent Russian troops into there to, yeah. whatever, intimidate and, and make sure they got the result they wanted at the referendum. I think that, look, you know, we've heard quite a lot at other discussions, um, you know, we don't understand Russia, we don't understand Putin, we shouldn't be imperialistic or you know, try to, to impose our image on other countries. Mm. That's all well and good, but people are people. And people actually do kind of want a bit of freedom, a bit Mm. of democracy, a bit of human rights, a bit of government accountability, a bit of justice. They actually don't want to be in today's Russia. If you're a journalist in today's Russia, you have more chance of being killed and put in jail and tortured and then not investigated, by the way, than practically any other country right now. It's one of the most dangerous places for journalists. So what's happening, and this also goes on to to the mythology and to the past, present, and future ideas. What's happened in Crimea, in a very short, you know, to, to just quickly you know, sum up, is that under the barrel of a gun, under the weight of state-run Russian propaganda, because they took off all the independent media in Ukraine, the Russians did, and fed in the state-run Russian propaganda, which is state-run, even RT or any of the newspapers, and mostly the uh, broadcasts, because they've just stopped the independent ones, in Russia, so this is, this is how they created their reality. But in order not to be a Western imperialist or a cultural imperialist, I just was looking at some voices from that region. Mm. So the Slovak Prime Minister this weekend on the radio, I heard him on Radio 4 saying, Russia has violated the rules. It's not the enemy, but it's violated the rules, <coughs> so we have to hold them accountable. He said, you know, many Slovaks, though, watch Russian television and they're persuaded by the Russian argument, which also, by the way, was a specious argument, that Russian speakers in Crimea and in eastern Ukraine were somehow under genocidal threat. It's simply not true. There's not an ounce of evidence by reporters on the ground to back that up, independent reporters on the ground. It's not true, so it was manufactured. Okay, so what what might he do with that? Today's front of the Financial Times, frankly, is worrying. Top NATO general in Russian troops alert. Again, I read this newspaper <coughs> carefully because it wasn't, you know, Prime Minister Cameron saying something. It was the president of Belarus, nobody in here's best friend. The president <laughs> of Belarus is worried by Russia's actions that the annexation of Crimea could lead to annexation of bits of Belarus or Moldova or eastern Ukraine, or, God forbid, northern Kazakhstan, where there are a lot of ethnic Russians, or the Baltics and all the rest of it. Then the president of Romania said that he was worried because Moldova butts Romania. Mm. So it is not we Westerners who don't understand Russia. It's a power play going on that the region is worried about. And Ukrainians in the east, yeah, they have a lot of problems. But they're like, hang on a second. We're going to go back to Russia and live under that illiberal regime where you can't, there is, no, there is no opposition politics, there's no free media. It's really not a nice place to be right now. And who knows what's going to happen? I interviewed Carl Bildt, the Swedish uh, foreign minister, who said that what Russia has done, what Putin has done now, is made Russia an unpredictable power. Nobody knows what he's going to do next. Mm. Nobody knows. Perfect. They are, you know, amassing troops in, in, on the border of Eastern Ukraine. Nobody knows where this goes next. For a Russian leader, nobody knows. It's weird. But he
1: has the and initiative. And there's no he diplomacy. Ha- he has the initiative, doesn't he? he has right. sort of diplomacy. And
3: so, and so what happens? Yeah. So the jaw-jaw, the, the, the where does that lead? President Obama's just landed in, in Europe this morning, and this is what he's going to be dealing with.
1: So, so Jamie, I mean, the, the former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, Jack, uh, Jack Matlock, recently that the U.S. has treated Russia like a loser, I think he said, since the end of the Cold War. Do you think that's true? Do you think there was a fair,
4: I mean, does that characterize the U.S.'s approach, do you think? No, I, I don't. I know that Jack Matlock knows a lot about Russia and studied it and wrote a very uh, thoughtful uh, book. But I, during the eight years, certainly, I was in the State Department and I know this has been true uh, since. Every effort was made to give Russia a seat at the table, to have them participate in decision-making. That doesn't mean we gave them a veto. And perhaps in these cases they wanted the right to decide what the world would do. So let's take the example. You know, we've heard a lot today, and I admit I'm a little biased, but you make your own judgment. Probably the best recent uh, intervention was Kosovo. Uh, 90% of the population was at risk, a genocide was about to take place, the West intervened, it had a peacekeeping plan, it had international support, it was a small enough place so that after victory there was a plan for for, a transition to uh, a relatively stable government. All that happened, and I visited there the other day, and it's a relatively normal place. Russia wanted to prevent that. Russia wanted Milosevic to go in, sweep the Albanians out, kill a couple hundred thousand. That's what Russia wanted to participate in, so we said no to that. We denied them a veto. I think the one case where Matlock's argument has a little bit of uh, credence would be uh, under the Bush, uh, second Bush administration during the Iraq War. I think that uh, at that time, post 9 eleven Putin had really reached out, uh, was the first person to call george W. Bush, uh, supported the activities in Afghanistan, supported Western American forces in the Central Asian uh, region, and the Iraq war uh, uh, diplomacy began and I think President Bush rushed that diplomacy. Obviously it made a lot of enemies, uh, or enemies, uh, anger in in France and Germany and other places. But I think Putin took that very personally and I think there would have been a way for him to work more closely with the Russians. The Russians wanted Iraq disarmed. And I think that was the moment when Putin decided that his effort to work with President Bush was not worth it. So there have been mistakes. I don't think it's been a perfect record. Uh, You know, I know we spent (laughs) many, many billions of dollars and tens of billions of dollars worth of effort in trying to support Russia in the 90s during the Yeltsin government. Um, We didn't, uh, you know, people were arguing we didn't do enough, that we should have had a Marshall Plan type argument and given them hundreds of billions of dollars. But in the end, Russia uh, has evolved under Putin to a pretty grim uh, foreign policy. And I don't think that's the fault of the West. I think that's getting it backwards. Mm. I think this is the way the Russians evolved. I don't think we had the influence to change that dramatically. Now we're dealing with it. And I think the only thing we can do is to deal with it in a very clear-eyed way. So diplomatically, there are still things we can do with Russia. Russia may be uh, engaged in this uh, basically gobbling up of another country. Uh, but we have arms control agreements with them. We have uh, strategic nuclear uh, arms control agreements which require inspections so that each side knows the other is reducing its forces. We have other agreements in the uh, nuclear strategic area that require inspections. Those types of things... In,
1: they're not in jeopardy, those agreements? You I have, hope don't not.
4: I don't think so. And I think it should be our goal to wall that off. And I think the Russians will want that walled off. So diplomacy uh, means, in this case, on arms control, continuing to do what's good for the West, what's good for the world. But on on the subject of Crimea and the potential intervention in eastern Ukraine, diplomacy may not include allowing the Russians to decide what to do because we now know what their decisions are. Their decisions are to invent a problem in Crimea and invent the solution which was the return of Crimea to Russia. We kind of know what that is. Any European who read anything knows what just happened. The question is what are we going to do about it? I sat with a group of bankers, about 500 of them the other day and they asked me what should we do about Crimea and I know what they wanted to hear. They wanted to hear that yes, we should put some sanctions on and some diplomatic efforts but not interfere with the normal functioning of our uh, banking system or not interfere with our business relationship with the Russians. Well, if we're not prepared, we as a world... Europeans and Americans, to interfere with, meaning cause some risk to our interests, well, then the Russians aren't going to take us seriously. So if it's not going to involve things that cause us pain, we have to be willing to accept pain to show that we care about these things. If we're not willing to accept it, we'll never get their attention and we won't be able to change their intentions.
1: Do you you think Putin would have moved in Crimea if George W. Bush was
4: president? Well, he intervened in Georgia um, in 2008 when George W. Bush was president. Look, our great pendulum has swung in the United States. This moment in the pendulum was about 2002, before the Iraq War. The world was either deterred, frightened of, scared, respected, whatever word you want, the United States could reach across the world and, and change a government. And prior to Iraq, That governmental change was in Kabul, and it was supported by the world. Mm. We had done the same thing in Kosovo, where we were supported by the world. So we had respect. We had fear in the form of deterrence. The Chinese, the Yugoslav, everyone was going, this military can change the world from the air without Mm. boots on the ground. Things changed. Um, and, And then... What's happened is the pendulum has started to swing back after many, many years of American forces on the ground in Afghanistan and Iraq, particularly. We have suffered. We haven't been able to achieve our objectives. Not only haven't we won, we haven't even achieved the narrow objectives we set for ourselves of stabilizing Iraq. That has harmed deterrence. The world doesn't worry as much about what the United States will do, whether it's George Bush sitting there or Barack Obama 2008 came and Putin looked at the United States and said, you know, I think they're done with their tough guy phase. Uh, They haven't used force in Iran. They haven't used force in Syria. They did the Iraq war. It hasn't worked so well. The pendulum is swinging back. What I worry about is that the pendulum will go too far Mm. and that the pendulum will become so averse to a role in the world for the United States and our public. Let's face it, all this policy that has been uh, seen as, uh, let's say, non-interventionist is very popular in the United States. And we can make it even more popular. We can get Americans to be in favor of doing very, very little about the world. And it's my recollection that, by and large, despite some mistakes, when America is leading the world and engaged and consulting and listening and doing the kinds of things during the time that I served, uh, the world is a better place. Uh, we don't want either retrenchment or, or, or the, the pendulum swinging to the point under <laughs> President Bush. We want the pendulum to be about right here, where yes, there's diplomacy, but it's backed by principles and backed by force if necessary, uh, but not as a first resort, as a last resort. Uh,
1: Chris, you, you, you were saying just before we came on um, that uh, leaders of the Western powers don't really understand the use of force. And it is very striking that you have you know, the greatest military machines that you know, the world has ever seen, and yet there seems to be a sort of uh, a policy failure, a failure of response in, in the EU and in the US to the Crimea crisis. I mean, would you, would you talk about that observation about the use of force?
2: Yeah, I think uh, our modern generation of political leaders are strategically illiterate. They don't get it. Um, And I'm afraid to say that military advice in the public discourse is absolutely banned in Western democracies. Uh, If you are an American general and you say what you think in policy terms, you're sacked the following day. Um, British generals, admirals and air marshals all want their knighthoods so they keep their mouths shut. Um, It's serious. Um, And um, unless we have a public uh, discourse about the use of military power, we will remain in the situation that James very eloquently describes. Um, But it's not just about the use of military power. It's worth reminding ourselves that America alone, not not including the rest of NATO, spends more on its defence than every other country in the world put together. That's the scale of military power. Now, if you're Putin, you're thinking, what kind of country has that overwhelming military power and doesn't use it, because I bloody well would if I had it. And he would. There's no question about it. We have to re-educate our political leaders, us, the public, us, the military leaders, and saying, look, this is how you threaten, this is how you use force. Uh, We've got out of the habit of it. Uh, I can tell you, every war we've been involved in since World War II has been a discretionary war, one we've chosen to get involved in, not one that has been forced upon. There's one exception, the Falklands. Uh, where we had to kind of go and get a bit of our country back. But actually, when you're doing that, it's a bit like pornography. You watch it, you don't get involved in it as a public. It's a hobby. You pay in blood and treasure, and the 10,000 wounded troops that we've got in this country as a result of Afghanistan and Iraq. But actually, the British public reads about it in the papers. It doesn't get involved. And I'd just like to bring the argument back. We're all very, very emotionally engaged in Syria and what is happening in Crimea. Just ask yourselves two questions. How many of you contributed okay, to Susan's very worthy appeal? And secondly, how many of you would be prepared to put on a uniform and go, to, go and do something about it? Because the people you're going to ask to do something about it are people like you and me. Okay? How, many, how many people is it worth to sort out Syria, to sort out Crimea? Bismarck had a great expression in the 19th century. It's not worth the life of a single Pomeranian grenadier. Chris, Christiane, would you like to pick oh, up on it? No, no,
3: no. Uh, I, 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 I'm listening to all of this, and I agree with a lot of it. Um, look... We have volunteer armies in these countries we in have the United labor yes. in the united states' it's, for me it 's tragic to see all these soldiers come back, men and women who are ruined i mean just ruined, and not just that, their country leaves them on the street. I mean truly, and maybe it 's happening in England as well i 'm not so sure um, but it 's just terrible so one so percent has defended whatever principles we stand for. For but the rest, but less point, than 1%. But my point is,
2: Christiane, yeah. that, that actually there is no strategic outcome right. that's been identified by the politicians for that sacrifice to take place. None of us who've volunteered... Right. No, you're no, right, no. I'm just making going, a comment. I, not... would, I would go to Syria tomorrow yeah. if I thought there was a defined objective which my injury or death actually would contribute to. I agree.
3: To. There's very little defined objectives. Um, you could if you wanted, but they haven't done it. But, but beyond that, I just think that, look, if we're talking about diplomacy and its discontent... Uh, you have to talk to Putin, and how are you going to talk to Putin? There has to be some kind of area to figure out how you 're going to talk because you 're not going to go to war ukraine's not a, hold on ukraine 's not a NATO country, so that 's not going to happen unless there 's a some kind of shooting war that starts so if we 're talking about diplomacy i 'm genuinely amazed, you know I really want to know how is that is that well, let, table going to be set? Let me set? interrupt
1: you there because we can hear from you again up on the screen. Ooh, <laughs> <Okay. listener. laughs>
3: One of the things your predecessor used to do from this very platform was deny the Holocaust and pretend that it was a myth. I want to know you, your position on the Holocaust. Do you accept what it was and what was it?
1: I've
4: said before that I am not a historian and that when it comes to speaking of the dimensions of the Holocaust, it is the historians that should reflect on it.
2: But in general,
4: I can tell you that any crime that happens in history against humanity, including the crime the Nazis committed towards the Jews as well as non-Jews, is reprehensible and condemnable. Whatever criminality they committed against the Jews we condemn the taking of human life is contemptible it makes no difference whether that life is jewish life christian or muslim for us it is the same
3: and finally can you give me a sentence in english that you would like to say to the american people i would like
1: to say to american people i bring peace, and friendship from Iranians to Americans. That was was quite a significant exchange, wasn't it? Well,
3: that was two bits from an hour-long interview. And the reason I think we chose this is because, uh, again, diplomacy and its discontents. Uh, Nobody wants to do diplomacy with Iran, but in every issue... Iran has to be at the table, whether it's Syria, whether it's you know, nuclear, whether it's regional, you mentioned Shia Sunni, all that stuff that's going on right there. But because Iran has so you know, put up this wall of mistrust, this, this you know, risk, who knows what they're going to do with their nuclear, all of that kind of stuff, it is very, 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 very difficult to even start a diplomatic talk with, with, uh, with Iran. It's very unpopular in Israel, as you know. Prime Minister Netanyahu is dead set against this, putting a lot of pressure on Congress in the United States. I don't know whether that's that kind of pressure here in Europe. I I assume probably less. But it's very, very difficult. So, the reason I asked him the Holocaust question was because of the eight terrible years of Ahmadinejad, who was a professional Holocaust denier, who was a really revolting person, uh, both as a politician and as a well, a president and as a, you know, person on the world stage. He, I would say, if possible, if it was possible, you know, drew so much more hatred and distrust and sanctions and all the rest of it to Iran, mostly because of this kind of thing, this, well, the Holocaust denial. And so I wanted to get Rouhani on the record because I knew it would have an impact, and it certainly had an impact. It became a huge talking point. The people who hated him in Iran, the hardliners who want no business and no part of Iran negotiating with the West, put out that I had lied, that I had not that he had not said Holocaust, that he that I had misrepresented his his words, that it was just you know a show, and obviously we were able to prove that that wasn't true. Uh, he did say it, and he said it you know on purpose. The people in the United States who did not, and in Israel who did not want to have the U.S. negotiating with Iran jumped on that thing from what was really the worst corner of the Iranian press, suddenly the Wall Street Journal and Israeli you know, newspapers were agreeing with farce news in Iran. Mm. A holocaust denying you know, horrible little rag. But this was diplomacy and its discontent. People didn't want this diplomacy to work. Now we don't know whether it will work or what. Then the English thing was because he's speaking Persian, it was for an American audience, and I just wanted to get, you know, some English thing to see whether he could say anything. That also took a huge negotiation, not with him, but with his people, because, as you could see, he has quite a heavy accent. And so they thought this interview was so important, not because it was with me or CNN, but because he was at the UN, it was the first interview he had done as president, and it was right at the start of this nuclear negotiation. And they went, no, he can't speak English, he'll look silly, he'll be so slow, his accent is terrible, and blah, blah, blah. In the end, he did it. And, and actually, it, yeah, it got fine. a lot of evuncular, online sort rather of... Rather avuncular. Yeah. yeah, so it was, it, it was a very interesting, uh, it's a very interesting moment yeah. in the one area which has been off limits of diplomacy for so in. long. We're, we're
4: fast running out of time, but thank you very much. Let me, let me yep. jump right in on that, because I, I know we've been talking about horrible things for the last uh, 45 minutes. There is good news out there, um, and in interesting places. Taiwan. I think if Chris were doing his work 10, 15 years ago at the Navy, many people thought Taiwan was going to be the <coughs> place that led to a U.S.-China escalatory conflict where missiles were being deployed by the Chinese, uh, anti-missile systems purchased by the Taiwanese, threats back and forth could escalate to conflict. Taiwan and the Chinese sat down diplomatically and have been negotiating, and it is a breakthrough. I believe that that conflict compared to the other ones in the South China Sea and the East China Sea is much less likely. But Iran is the second one. If you were to say what was the other big issue out in the world, It was Iranian nuclear capability. In fact, all of Obama's foreign policy for the first five years was, frankly, oriented towards this negotiation, reset with Russia to put sanctions on Iran, the relationship with China to put sanctions on Iran and get them to buy more oil from Saudi Arabia. They spent hundreds and hundreds of hours negotiating with Congress, negotiating with Russia, with China to try to set up this moment where... Uh, it was possible to have a diplomatic agreement with Iran. But the truth was, as long as Ahmadinejad was president, that wasn't possible. And now this guy is president, and he's changed their policy. He's accepted the idea that limits can be placed on Iran's nuclear uh, facilities prior to the end of sanctions. So will it happen? I don't know. But if Taiwan, Iran, and even the Israeli-Palestinian issue, which normally would have spent 45 minutes of this discussion, is somewhat encouraging. I think that's Absolutely. not bad for diplomacy.
1: Let me stop you there for a second. Now, we've got about three or four minutes to go. I want to bring Susan in, who we haven't heard from, and then I'm, I'm going to collect up some questions, uh, which we'll put in sort of in one go to, to some panellists uh, before as we finish up. So, so Susan, it was a... It was a we, we haven't heard from you, and, and um, it, it was a st- one of Hillary Clinton's stated aims when she kept, became Secretary of State to use more public diplomacy. She said she wanted to, to take diplomacy out of capitals and out of government offices and into the media, into the streets of countries. I mean, do, do, you, I mean, do, you, do you see a role for that sort of bottom-up uh, engine of change? I mean, does NGOs have a part to play in that, do you think, or should they always be totally separate from government?
6: Uh well, it absolutely should be separate from government, and um, <clears throat> by having that uh, freedom, there, uh, <clears throat> I think government uh, will actually listen to the people at the at the bottom level, and uh, it's really important that uh, the people who are <clears throat> sorry, I've lost my voice. <laughs> um, the NGO world, oh, thanks. Um, it has a, a role to play in. Uh, collectively listening to communities where the decisions are made about them. Um, when we're looking at the Syrian crisis in particular, um, we, we've got these displaced Syrians all across the region. And um, you've got... They're not welcome in these countries. That's another people thing that people don't really appreciate. Um, the, Lebanon has a population of 4 million people, and you have 1 million Syrians there. And the Syri- and the Lebanese said, um, we're not having camps here. Because we know what camps are. Camps are villages. They become villages and these people become part of our population. Just like the Palestinians, there's 600,000 Palestinians still living in Lebanon all these years later. And so... What happens to people in camps and in urban centers where they're staying in people's apartments and couches and various places is they don't have they feel like they don't have a voice in what's going to happen to them and how can they return and the NGOs provide that voice in many cases and in 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 particular the right to livelihood in these places because uh, of the economic situation these governments say you're not allowed to work. The Syrian refugees in every neighbouring country except Iraq are not allowed to work. So how in the world are you supposed to have an income and, uh, and, and provide for your families? So there's a huge pressure on the host communities as well, and that's where the NGOs actually have a place to have a voice for uh, the, the displaced thank, refugees. Absolutely.
1: Thank, thank you. So um, we, we've got about two or three minutes left. Um, We'll have got time for some questions and comments, but I'm going to collect them up rather than go case by case. So do please say who you are and keep it as brief as you can. There, please.
3: Hi,
5: uh, Kate Maltby. Having, like Susie, recently spent some time visiting with Syrian refugees in Turkey um, who are very angry with the West, Chris, you asked for strategic objectives to be worth British bodies. I would say that James had actually already identified one, which is to prevent blowback, because there will be blowback. But my question is... War games. Someone asked last night did the Foreign Office war game Crimea five years ago? If not, why not? Are we planning strategically? How do we plan strategically and how do we do that in a democracy where our leaders keep changing?
0: Thank you. Uh, yes, sir, mm-hmm. th- th- back there. Thanks. Ian Anderson. I'm interested in Jamie Rubin's point about the pendulum. You know, look back to what happened in terms of potential Syrian intervention back in the summer of last year and we just didn't go there. Have we have we as the West now crossed a Rubicon to carry on your pendulum analogy? Have we crossed a Rubicon that we're not we're not going to um, that we're not that we're, we're just not going to go back on and what does that mean for the evolution of the supranational organizations? Do we have um, institutions that are fit for purpose uh, in this new world where the West just doesn't seem to want to intervene. Thank you very much. And
1: at the back up there as well.
7: Hi, just a couple of points actually. Uh, the humanitarian issue obviously is, is, a, is a terrible thing in Syria and in, in, in around the world with situations like this. But my point that I just wanted to raise was the problem in Syria, the, the issue of the privileged information of hitting 12 countries. That wasn't privileged information, that was known, and it was, it was stated in a, a press conference that Bashar al-Assad gave across many Arabic outlets. Um, but I think the point is, this blowback issue, I think Syria is a very different country to any other country in the Middle East, for a start. Um, there is obviously a resentment of the West anyway. There was embargoes and sanctions on Syria for 30, 35 years The people don't trust the West in Syria. And there is an issue, and there is a fear that actually, why now, after 35 years of sanctions, why now are people trying to come in and trying to help? Obviously, the humanitarian crisis is an issue. There is problems with government. There are multiple issues across the Middle East, but okay. I think it's, it's a very different
0: situation.
1: Absolutely. To... Terrific, thank you. And one more on the other side over there, please.
0: Uh, Peter York. Um, Western democracies are very... Um, varied and selective in their relationships with horrible regimes and horrible rulers. Um, It depends on the time, it depends on the interest set. What is Western strategy about Syria? Is there one and what is it? Mm -hmm. Do you know, that's what people are genuinely very puzzled about. I mean, we've heard um, Kerry being mellifluous about Crimea Um, People are publicly mellifluous. We know that in private, they're not mellifluous. They know what their skin in the game is. They know what their long-term interests are. They know what the chessboard planning is. What is it? That's what most British people want to know about Syria because we went very rapidly from broadly sort of endorsing Syria and having nice profiles in vogue about Mrs Assad... To an absolutely universal, consensual idea that this was part of the Arab Spring and a good thing.
1: Peter, thank you. Thank you very much. Right, we are pretty much out of time. I'm going to give each of you ten seconds to say either something in response to that or some other remark that you'd like to make,
4: starting with you. Jamie. Western policy towards Syria has been a muddle till now. It's likely to remain a muddle, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I do think it's highly unlikely that under the current group of leaders uh, there will be intervention, and I think it's a terrible, terrible, terrible tragedy. Thank you, Chris.
2: Strategy for Western politicians consists mainly, oh, sorry, solely of winning the next election. That's, That's the, the the extent of it. The FCO doesn't war game. It likes to be retrospectively right 100% and actually being 80% <laughs> uh, ahead right. Okay, I can tell you now, I did a strategic plan for Iraq and Afghanistan. It was rejected by the FCO on the basis I'm just a bloody naval officer. Okay, so that's that. And Thank you very much, my sir. final point okay. is that British companies don't do strategy either. About 96% of them don't believe in it. And that's why you should use the past to inform the future. Very good.
1: Christiane?
3: Blowback has started. Just look at Iraq. blowback has started. Look over Northern Africa. blowback has started. Look at Britain with Syria with people coming back having fought in Syria. Blowback mm-hmm. has started. Thank you
1: very, very much to my panel.
3: <laughs> this
0: podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for editorial intelligence. With thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ, and all the partners and participants who made and make names not numbers possible.